Our reading this morning is taken from Colossians 3. I'm going to read um, verses 1 to 11. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is adultery. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is God's word. Well, good morning, good morning. Let me have my welcome. Uh, My name is Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, as ever, we come to you and need you to help us. Help us to listen, to understand and apply your word. For here are profound truths that affect us most deeply, and yet we will not grasp them or be transformed by them unless your spirit is at work. So please, even now, be at work amongst us, we pray, to the honour of your name. Amen. Now, how do we change? That's the issue. How do we change or, or, or transformed? It's very much the issue of this particular text. How do we mature in the Christian life? And that's very much, in one sense, the, an issue that's going on in the whole of this letter of Colossians. Uh, there were um, some people who had arrived in this church, Happy Church, in the, uh, the town city of Colossae, uh, all going well. Some people arrived and said to them, the congregation there, you're okay, but if you want to mature, well, then listen to us. There are various dreams, visions, experiences that will really help you. We can apply certain ascetic rules upon you, that'll help. That's the way to mature. And if you were here last time, Paul was saying, no, 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 uh, to those sort of things. So it just uh, the two big ones that crop up. Uh, question, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. What about things such as the worship of angels and visionary experiences? Are they going to give you closer intimacy with God? Chapter 2, verse 19, no. No, you become obsessed with those. You lose connection with Jesus Christ, the head. So don't be obsessed with visionary experiences and voices and God showed me this and saw me. Don't be obsessed with those things. You can lose touch with Jesus. But what about then um, rules and regulations? Self-denial, does that help? Verse 23, these sort of regulations, human commands and teachings, they have an appearance of wisdom with a self-imposed worship, false humility, harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value. So how do we change, Paul, if it's not through some mystical experiences, if it's not through uh, applying rules and regulations to ourselves, how do we change? Well, I'm pleased you asked, he says. 
kind of, and you get chapter 3, uh, and this little section here, 1 to 7. Now let me suggest to you that the, uh, uh, the little heading you get in our Bibles that we're using here, the NIV, is a bit of a disaster. If you look, just turn back again, what last time, we won't keep doing this, chapter 2, verse 6, the little italicised comment or heading they give us, not in the Bible originally, freedom from human regulations through life with Christ, that's pretty good. Freedom from regulations or rules. And then chapter 3, rules. <laughs> Someone, the editor wasn't on their game perhaps uh, when that went in. Because the point being here, merely imposing rules, even the stiffest amount of resolve, will not transform you. Jesus Christ is what you need, the theme of the letter, and he is the one who will change you. Now we've got to work out how that happens. Essentially, we're just going to look at these first seven verses of chapter three, because here you, you start to get encapsulated, oh, the method is a terrible way of putting it, but here is the process of how you get changed, and then in the later weeks they'll apply that to church life, to family life, to work life. But here is the sort of big idea that he's then going to apply to these different areas of uh, living. And it works a bit like this. There's one wonderful indicative, a declaration of what God has done, and then two imperatives that flow from that. So as I put it on these sheets, you have been raised with Christ. If you're a Christian believer, that has been done to you. Therefore, keep seeking the things above and put to death your earthly nature. Okay, what God has done, essentially, comes before what we're to do. Let's have a look at them then. First, that you have been raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ, and on it flows. Now, this could be very simple. You could say, in the New Testament, there are three resurrections spoken of. This is slightly oversimplistic. First of all, there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one that took place in history. We have a party every year. It's called Easter to celebrate that that took place. Okay, that's spoken of lots in the, in the New Testament. Second one would be the resurrection that takes place in every believer when they become a Christian. It's not a physical thing, but spiritually, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the New Testament would say, you are raised with him, changed. Now, we need to explore what that means. It says, Jesus' resurrection, that you're raised with Christ when you become a Christian, and then thirdly, there is the physical, bodily resurrection still to come in the future when Jesus returns. But there is a close link between that second and the, well, the close link between all of them. But here his emphasis is, you're raised with Christ. You'll have observed, it is a nice bright day today and so was yesterday. And it's a great delight after all the rain of the last week. But this is still not heaven. We're not raised to resurrection life yet. But if you're a Christian here this morning, spiritually, you've been raised with Christ. And we started to say last week, a key step to growing in Christian character is to let your life be shaped by this union with Jesus Christ. To let your life be shaped by his past and future. 
to a number of ways to put it. We said in one sense last week is a bit like a baby in a mother's womb where the mother goes, the baby goes. But lots of different other ways. I don't know if anyone's ever done a tandem skydive. I have not. Um, but I assume it works a bit like this. You're strapped to someone who knows what they're doing. If they don't, worry. But you're strapped to someone who knows what they're doing. When they jump, you jump. When they fall, you fall. When they, probably a little later after, a little longer after you're really desiring them to pull the ripcord, the chute goes up and they float and you float and they land and you land. Super. Their experience is yours. You're united to them. And Paul just wants to keep banging away here. Jesus Christ descended to the death and has risen again to heaven, and there's a sense in which that is true of you spiritually if you're a Christian. You have died to one life, you have risen again to new life, because you're united to him. So this section on godly living, let's not call it rules for holy living, let's just talk about how to be godly or something like that. But this section on how to be godly, you see just these first four verses, it's dominated by Christ. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, you've been raised with Christ. Set your minds on above, where Christ is seated. End of verse 3, you're hidden with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. The Christian life is all about him. What a relief. Before we become obsessed with navel-gazing and introspection, first and foremost, it's about him what he has done, and we're united to him. Think about him. Raised with Christ means that there's a sense in which the resurrection power of the future has broken into today, into the present. What does it mean? Well, it's a little like, imagine you, you, you get a brand new computer and you put it on your desk and it's shiny and gleaming and has been designed in California, probably made in China, but it's gleaming and, all, it's, and it's all super and lovely and, and it just looks nice. And you think, this is a really lovely 1,000 pound paperweight and golly, it looks nice with its white logo on the top of the thing. Until you plug it in, it's pretty useless. Plug it in, it's transformed. It can do all sorts of things. Again, it's a bit like the Christian life. On our own, we're dead spiritually. When we are plugged into the source of life, Jesus Christ, resurrection life flows into us. We can do different things now. Obvious comment. I don't feel that different. There's been no great power surge, no sort of naff do 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 jingle that says power is connected. There's not okay, no. But let's sort of squeeze this analogy for all it's possibly worth. When you open the computer on your computer, if you're anything like me, you go, Ooh, what can it do now? I don't know, and you try things and you play with things, and it takes a little bit of time for you to realise the potential. It's connected to the power, but I'm clueless. I can't do anything with it. And over time, that 
power that's there enables me, as I diligently tap away and try and work things out, yes, to do things. Things I never dreamed possible. Interwebs and all sorts of crazy, exciting things. But what Paul wants to say, you've been raised with Christ. There is a sense in which resurrection life fundamentally begins when you become a Christian. There is power, there is a seed planted into you that can never be robbed and guarantees the resurrection that is to come. You've been raised with Christ, he insists. That's been done to you. Now, given that's the case, uh, okay, super. What do I do with that? Glad you asked. Two things. Keep seeking the things that are above and put to death your earthly nature first. Keep seeking the things above. Again, in 1 to 4. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So Paul is writing to a group of Christians, they live in the city of Colossae, and he says, look, you need to remember two things. You live in Colossae and in Jesus Christ, and both are fundamentally true. So for myself, my name is Matt Fuller, I am a church minister pastor who lives in London, and I am united to Jesus Christ, and I belong with him in glory. Now, both of those things are true of me. But this one, the first one, I'm a minister pastor in London, that's only true for another 30 years or so. This one, that I'm united to Jesus Christ and belong with him in glory, is true for eternity. We may not feel it as acutely as the London rain and sunshine and whatever it comes, but it is more fundamental. It is more enduring. It cannot change. What I do, where I live, that can change and won't last for very long anyway. This can never change. You need to remember that. You get these two parallel instructions, set your hearts on things, set your minds on things, and I guess together they capture the sense of the verbs as well. This is not Paul merely saying, think, 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 think about heaven, or emotionally just long to be there, but think and daydream and feel it. Let this dominate you, centre your ambitions there, on what? On things that are above in contrast to earthly things. Rules, regulations, mystical experiences, whatever it may be. But the best thing he says about heaven is very simple. Jesus is there. Christ is sat in triumph. So you need to set your being upon him. Now that's not a one-off activity, and most would have realised that. You have to do it all the time. Set your minds or hearts on Jesus Christ. It's not like... I've got into my car, I've got one, and I've tapped the postcode into sat-nav, and off I go. It will unfailingly, ha it will unfailingly take me there, because I've put... No, with this you have to keep on doing it. The verb has that sense. It's an ongoing, repeated effort to seek the things that are above, rather than earthly things. Okay. But it's hard because this world is tangible, physical, yes, 
So Paul goes on. But here's some further encouragements. Verse 3, you're, you've died and are hidden. It's a wonderful insurance, assurance. The, the change within you it may not be obvious, but God has done it. And he's hidden you, that is, he's protecting you. He won't let you go. And verse 4, here's further encouragement. You will appear with Christ in glory. The future is wonderful. So, daydream on what Christ has done for you and where you're going, not on earthly things. And that will make a difference. Because otherwise you'll be a bit like, oh, I don't know, you can take all number of examples. Esau. Esau in the Old Testament. Do you know the story of it? Esau, Abraham's son, his brother Jacob. Genesis 25. Esau's the big burly hunter uh, and uh, comes in one day from... Uh, he's been out hunting. Now, Esau is the firstborn son, and he inherits everything. Abraham is super wealthy with lots of uh, uh, um, animals and crops, all sorts of things. He's worth a fortune. But more important than that, he's got God's blessing upon him. Abraham is the one who is blessed, and God is committed to that. And as firstborn son, Esau gets that, the wealth and, more fundamentally, God's blessing. Comes in one day. He's been hunting. He's hungry. Jacob has cooked stew says, give me some stew. Only if you give me your blessing, your birthright. <laughs> give me stew. Okay. So they do a deal. And Esau gives up everything. All the wealth, the inheritance, more significantly, the blessing of God upon his life, he gives it up for a bowl of stew. The writer wants it. It's lentil stew. Not even bacon and lentil. Not even Covent Garden bacon and lentil. It's vegetable soup. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you give up the blessing of God and vast inheritance for a bowl of soup? Why would you do that? You would only do that if you're thinking only of earthly things, of your tummy at that moment in time, rather than the more glorious things that await you. What a... You can't help but read that and you think, you, Esau, are... An idiot. You're an idiot. You would never do such a thing unless you're an idiot. Why would you? But then, of course, if you're any sort of sensible person, you read it and think, do I ever sort of stop thinking about what I have in Jesus Christ and where I'm going just for the stuff in front of me? I may not get excited about a bowl of lentil soup, but it's very easy to daydream about, I know, other earthly things. The perfect job, with the perfect package, perfect hours, and the same money. Mm. Very easy to fantasize about that and let that dominate. Your thinking time is obsessed with it. Or the perfect house, with the perfect garden, oh, look at that. How many feet is it? I can't even count. Wonderful. More than, you need two hands to count the the distance of the meters? Yes, wow. Easy to daydream about the... And those things are what you obsess about. And you're fixated on earthly things. And that's not going to help you. It's not going to change you in any sense. You need to allow your life to be shaped fundamentally by Christ's life, what he has done, and where you're going with him. Have your life shaped by his 
I read a novel, um, a trashy novel, to be honest, a little while ago, but it was quite fun, uh, holiday read sort of nonsense. It was called The Hollow Man. It was a thriller uh, set in London, so it was great because you can kind of work out, oh, he's gone here and gone there, and oh, that building, I always wonder what that building was, and now I know. Um, but anyway, so the thriller set in London. The main character is a cop, he's a sort of slightly corrupt cop called Nick Belsey, and he's bankrupt, and he's in all sorts of trouble, and he's about to lose his job. He gets sent to investigate a missing person, a reclusive millionaire who lives on Bishop's Avenue, which sometimes is the most expensive street in London, then sometimes somewhere in Kensington is anyway, bounces back and forth. But super wealthy, reclusive millionaire, Alexei Devereaux. He's Russian, and no one really knows much about him. So Nick Belsey goes to his house and finds him, and he's committed suicide. Oh, that's right. Hold on a minute. No one knows who this is. Google, there are no pictures of this man on the internet. He has no... And uh, he puts aside, Nick Bells, he puts aside his bankrupt life and just assumes the life of Alexei Devereaux, wears his clothes, takes his bank cards, lives in his mansion, works out that in about a week's time a deal is going to go through, netting £38 million. His life is transformed. He puts aside his life and lives the life of this reclusive millionaire and it utterly transforms him. Now, to be clear, Jesus Christ is not a corrupt Russian millionaire who's... No, no, no. But you see, we put aside our life in a sense and far more significantly, the life of Jesus Christ his death to sin, his resurrection to new life. We're united to that life. And that is the one that is more significant. Even though physically we walk around London, we go to work, we bring up children, whatever it may be, of course we do these things, but that will fade. But this life, united to Jesus Christ, going to be with him in glory, will not fade. And we have to allow that to shape us just as much as where we live here and now. The key step to growing in the Christian life is to let your life be shaped by Christ's past and future, not your own. Who am I? I'm Matt Fuller. I live in London. I work as a pastor. I am united to Jesus Christ. I belong with him in glory. I've got to hold both of those. And Paul would say, daydream about this one. Set your minds on this one. Set your hearts on this one if you want to change and grow. Don't move away from Jesus Christ. Seek him. Okay, so you've been raised with Christ. That's what God has done. What do we have to do? Keep seeking the things that are above. Secondly, put to death your earthly nature. Verse 5, therefore. Put to death, therefore. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual impurity, excuse me, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, here's an obligation upon the Christian, put to death sin within. So throughout this, there's the emphasis, we have fullness in Jesus Christ, everything we need in him, and we're united to him. Fullness in Christ, but there is filthiness still within. Now, we're still sinful and always will be in this life. So there's a balance here in the Bible. There's no complacency. Paul doesn't say, you've been raised with Christ, now just 
Go and lie on the lilo of life and all will be well. Now he says, you've been raised with Christ. You have to work hard at seeking him and you need to work hard at, that's quite strong, isn't it? Put to death whatever is not right, whatever needs changing. It's violent language, kill, murder, slaughter, destroy, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And there's a little list there. John Owen, the, uh, the Puritan, famously put it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Abrupt, isn't it? But there is that sense to it here. Strong language. Not dislike your sin, regret your sin, be a bit annoyed with your sin, it's kill. Meaning what? Exactly. I mean, okay. Put to, what does that mean? Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Well, of course, it does get misunderstood. In centuries past, uh, monks, medieval monks, may have stood in freezing buckets of cold water, wearing hair shirts and sort of self-flagellating and thinking, that's, well, that's not going to do anything because that's just all outside of you. Others will just, you, willpower, I'm just going to change myself by working really hard. I will not lust. You can't do it. You can't just change by willpower. What in this world around us? So what does Paul suggest? What does it mean? Verse 5. Well, you get a little list here. Uh, three particular areas of sin, so it seems to me. So put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality. Then you get these more general sensory words. Impurity, lust, evil desires. And then Greed. Unsurprisingly, in the city of Colossae, sex, obsessing, coveting things with our eyes, and his greed, those were the dominant things he chose to fix on. So question, how do you put to death greed? Well, he's told us, you keep seeking the things that are above and cut off the desire as far as you can what does that mean? Cut things off. Sin is attractive. Sin is really attractive. Whatever it may be, greed or sexual immorality. And we can sometimes just be captivated by it. There's a great little program, a wildlife program, on, uh, on most Saturday mornings on a children's television uh, called Live and Deadly. Very good. Uh, learn all sorts of things. Fairly recently, a little while ago, they had the, the deadly top 30. The 30 deadliest creatures in the world. Brilliant. You know, there's going to be sharks and all sorts of violent things. Sort of, you know, brilliant. Uh, what sort of things could boys of whatever ages prefer to watch? Anyway, so you're watching this countdown and they're all pretty violent and aggressive creatures. Brilliant. Uh, and they got to number 22. Number 22, the stoat. Oh, come on. Come on. Small, cuddly, 20, 25 centimetres long. The stoat? Why is that so deadly? And yet, they went on to explain, they kill rabbits ten times their size. And anything which kills an opponent ten times its size is deemed quite deadly. How does a stoat kill a rabbit? Do you know? By dancing. By dancing. 
Absolutely true. They had this wonderful footage. So there's a, a whole um, collective noun of rabbits. Warren? No, what is it? There's a lot of rabbits. Um, uh, I'm glad no one else knows. I don't feel stupid anymore. Uh, there's a whole lot of rabbits in a field. And then about 150 metres away, a stoat. There's a stoat and sees the rabbits. And the rabbits, and everyone stops and freezes. And everyone's a bit nervous. And then the stoat starts to dance. Not like you and I might dance. Well, I don't know about you. It's a bit more like break dancing. They sort of do these flips and sort of roll around on the floor and sort of back flips. And, and the rabbits are just mesmerized. So the rabbits are there like a toddler watching TV. <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing. To, the rabbits are just mesmerized. And the stoat dancing, no, it doesn't do that. But the stoat. Not doing backflip, but the stoat dances closer and closer and closer to the rabbits and the rabbits. And then eventually the stoat is close enough, it just and grabs the rabbit in the neck and kills it. They dance their opponents to death. That's amazing. That's far more exciting than a shark, isn't it? You know, did you know there's a creature that dances? Brilliant. Now, why do I tell you that? Um, there's a sense in which that is how we relate to sin. Oh, look at that. Probably shouldn't daydream about these things. Probably shouldn't lust after these things. Wow. Probably shouldn't, but golly, this is exciting. This is interesting. It does me no harm to spend ten hours a day looking at sofas on the internet whatever it may be. God, I look at him. And slowly, not that simple, but you know, the, um, we obsess about things and slowly, 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 we're drifting away from Christ and we're nowhere. We're nowhere. We're dragged away from him. And so Paul suggests that the Christian life, there is a sense of warfare to it. You may have thought I was writing you a letter, says Paul. Actually, it's weapons training, if you want to put it in that way. Just, just think about this fight that he's encouraging put to death. If you can think it in terms of a little warfare or skirmish, a few little things. It is a well-resourced fight, Paul would say. You've been raised with Christ. The resurrection power is at work within you. You have all you need for this battle. You're not going to run out of bullets or anything like that. It's well-resourced, one. Two, it's habitual. The Christian needs to keep seeking Jesus in order to avail themselves of his resurrection power. There's no magic formula. The normal means of grace that the Bible gives us, daily praying to the Lord, daily listening to him as we read his word, regular fellowship with other believers, unremarkable things that do a supernatural work in us. They equip us, resource us, for the fight. It's a well-resourced fight, habitual. It's painful. Sinful habits become a part of us. The 40-year-old man who becomes a Christian but has been a compulsive liar all his life will find it quite hard to stop. The 25-year-old who's been addicted to porn since 15 will find it hard to stop. It's painful. That's why he says, put it to death. Or as Jesus would put it, What's causing you to sin? If it's your eye, gouge it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. That isn't, you know, tickle it to death language. It's destroy. Well, I've had this um, 
very helpful, tucked away. It comes out of various books I read because I wrote it and typed it out and printed it off a number of times. Richard Baxter, another Puritan, put it there very simply this way. Keep as far away as you can from those temptations that feed and strengthen the sins that would overcome you. Lay siege to your sins. Starve them. Keep away the food. Keep away the fuel, which is their maintenance and life. It's a helpful image, isn't it? If you're in a war, you can starve people out. You can starve your sin off just by not indulging it. This is a well-resourced, habitual, painful conflict, but it is slowly progressive. You'll make progress. Wonderfully, Paul put it elsewhere, from one degree of glory to the next, is his phrase in 2 Corinthians 4. You've been raised with Christ, so keep sinking the things that are above and put to death your earthly nature. Let me just give you an example, just one example, uh, to, to ground it a bit more. Uh, then we're done. Greed. He mentions greed as uh, one of the things there in the, uh, the list of verse 6. What does it mean then? How do we overcome our greed? Well, it's a number of steps, aren't there? I guess if you follow what Paul has said here. You need to say to yourself, I am raised with Christ. I am hidden with him. I am awaiting him in glory. I will not exchange worldly things, like Esau did, a bowl of broth, for my heavenly blessing. And I won't give up even my well-done, good and faithful servants just to come obsessed with little things here and now, because that's where I'm going and that's where I belong. I'm raised with Christ. I need to remind myself, therefore, in with greed, that I am rich with Christ. Paul has told me in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, that Jesus Christ owns everything and he wants to share it with me. Jesus Christ owns the world and says, come reign with me. I'm not short of money to come. I will inherit more than I could possibly daydream about. I'm rich with Jesus Christ. So then what does that mean? What does it it mean to put to death? Therefore, I don't need to go to websites, magazines that will make me obsess about money. Or whatever money it is, whatever you think money it is, whatever you want money to buy. Perfect car, holiday, house. I'm going to put to death those things. I'm not going to spend all my time with people who just talk about cars. Because when I do that, that's all I want to talk about and think about. I will not spend all of my time with people who just talk about housing and spend endless hours looking at Zoopla and whatever it is and, and, and cushions. Sorry. I'm not going to... St- and when I'm in conversation with Christians, with brothers and sisters, and all we seem to be talking about is, is money and how we could do with more and then we'd be able to do this, I'm going to be the awkward one who says... I'm awkward, and I'm going to say, this is not helpful, is it? Should we talk about Jesus rather than just worldly things? Because I'm obsessing with money, and I don't want to do that anymore. I think that's the sort of thing he's saying here. You set your mind on things above and what you have in Jesus Christ, you put to death. I cut myself off from other things. And you've got to be realistic. There'll be progress, there'll be setback, and you look up again and go forward. That's one thing about, you know, anything, you can take any issue, any issue and do the same sort of thing. Anger. I'm angry.
angry at the moment. What do I do with that? Well, I look up and remember I'm sat with Christ. I'm hidden with him. I have been really badly treated by someone here, but I... And I can seek redress, and it's entirely appropriate that I do, but I'm not going to let this issue define me, because I'm united with Jesus Christ. And I've been told in chapter 1, 15 to 20, that he rules over everything, so even if I'm having a tough time, I know it's not outside of his rule. I belong to him, and therefore I'm going to put to death my anger. That is, I'm going to, as far as possible, I'm not going to daydream about what I'd love to do to that stupid individual who's done that stupid individual. I'm not going to do that. Daydream about Christ. And when do I get most angry? Is it late at night? Is it after a drink? Well, I'm going to cut those things off. And there'll be progress and there'll be setback and I keep looking up and on we go. Do you see? I'm not saying it's easy. Paul's not saying it's easy. That's why the language is violent here. That's why the, the verbs are sort of ongoing. You have to keep setting your mind. Keep setting your heart every day. Fix on these things. But chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. For Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. And you'll change. Slowly, he will change you. From one degree of glory to the next, incrementally we become a little bit more like Jesus Christ. Not through rules, but by knowing we're united to him and allowing that to dominate who we are. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we, we do love the realism of your word. In this letter we're spending time in at the moment, there's no shortcut to radical change and godliness. There's no button we can press to transform our hearts from angry ones to patient, loving ones, from covetous ones to content ones. But we can change being united to Jesus Christ and allowing that truth to infect our hearts, our minds, to change our hearts, our minds, even as we also seek to cut off the things which cause us to sin. We can become more like him. That's a wonderful truth. His resurrection power flows in the body of every believer. So, Father, alongside realism, give us great hope that you will change us as we dwell upon Jesus Christ, sat in glory and know that there is where we belong. Change us, we pray, in his great name. Amen.